Fiction. Radio Play, an oft-ridiculed frontier. It all started when a remote programming experiment some community radio station on the central coast of California was conducting went a little caca. Their names are Gall, Moses, and Ted. They're lost, aren't we all? One of them owns an astronaut costume, shot through a wormhole for the sake of narrative explanation. Anyway, here they are, bouncing around speculative fiction thematic time and space, rather timidly going where many a man has gone before. These are the voyages of the Incompanots. Interior, Faraday Cage, Russian Asteroid Mine, Magic Hour. Deep on the Rose Cosmos controlled Putin on the Ritz, Gaul, Moses, and Ted float helplessly in zero-G, arms and legs zip-tied tight. Ted's eyes loll in his head while his fingers click away aimlessly on a mechanical keyboard of his own imagination. Ted mutters to himself. Barbarella computer. Brian, anti-grav boots keeping him in place, large belly undulating, stands stern beneath their flailing. The remains of a stereotypical Russian oligarch feast, caviar, vodka, blintzes, dot a shirt like a slovenly Jackson Pollock. You Soviet swine! Brian grins at the three American prisoners floating above him. Their discomfort brings him great joy. Why, Brian? Why do this now? The world was so close to total fossil fuel independence. Why? Brian laughs a hearty, evil laugh. <laughs> Isn't it clear? This is a techno thriller slash CIA funded propaganda project written by an American who spent 30 years as an engineer. I have no other option but to be evil. Just as you, Gal, the female protagonist, have no other choice but to be both impossibly brilliant and impossibly beautiful. Ted awakens from his inward Wikipedia haze to interject. Women can be so obtuse. Now, I may just be a mild-mannered science man who knows nothing about nothing yet somehow gets all the ladies, but I got a feeling you're not gonna get away with this one, Brian. Something about that one thing we did way in the beginning of this story that seemed insignificant at the time is probably gonna come back and save us all. Impossible. My plans are perfectly laid. My overconfidence is a literary cliché. Suddenly, Brian's body begins to redden and smoke. Blisters form on his face as he releases an agonizing scream. <laughs> My face! My beautiful swarmy thing! Who could have seen this coming? Ow! Everyone looks to Ted, his face suddenly a steely resolve, his inward regression clearly an act. Behind his back, in his hands, a real computer. It wasn't imagined after all. A gruff voice with a terrible southern accent echoes through the aluminum box. Ted, this is President America. I just want to say you've done us proud. Now we won't have to rely on those terrible Cossacks and their crude oil any longer. Good job, son. Ted takes a puff of an American-made cigar. I was just doing what any good patriot would do. Tears well in Gaul's eyes. We're saved! Now I can go back to my non-threatening, highly successful academic science lady career that perfectly complements the career of the man I've been stringing along for so long because of my unresolved emotional baggage. I'm even ready to forget my dead husband who died in a tragically masculine accident and get married again. I'll finally be fulfilled. Moses performs a series of complicated aerial acrobatics to move everyone's zip ties. Who knew my short-lived romance with that Cirque du Soleil performer in Chapter 1 would come in handy? Wait, Brian! He's missing! 
Everyone looks to the corner where moments ago Brian's limp and blistered body lay. All that's heard is a sinister, distant laugh. gentlemen and welcome to last refuge of the incompetent i am gall i am moses and i'm amazed you didn't have some weird pun to open the show with but my name's ted you know why i didn't (laughs) because there's probably going to be a sketch before this and i thought it'd be a little bit overkill anyway welcome to our 27th show what a portentous number oh yeah this is our cube show (laughs) this is our cube show we are talking renewable energy this week with very special guests yeah in sci-fi oh yeah this is a sci-fi show did i forget to (laughs) say that anyway our very special Mm -hmm. guest benny bertanini hi pleasure to join this week i'm currently a student at columbia university's school of international and public affairs doing a master's of public affairs with a concentration in energy and environmental policy and have previously worked in various capacities in california governance dealing with energy and environmental issues and also big fan of science fiction so happy to be here Ted, what did you study? You have like a similar thing. Uh, the name of my master's program was Culture, Environment, and Sustainability. And yeah, a lot of people did energy and development stuff. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> I found a lot of music related to this episode. There's like a old Louisiana blues guitarist named Clarence Gatemath Brown who's got a song called Atomic Energy. There's an Anvil song called Gasoline that's like about uh, gasoline. <laughs> um, there's Wait, is, a band- is Anvil that old like proto-metal band that had a documentary made about them? Oh yeah, absolutely. Know. It's quite a song when i think of deep thinkers i definitely think of anvil <laughs> you know when they talk about metal on metal like what could they what could that be about <laughs> who knows well there's also like a anarcho-punk band from scotland called oi polloi with a song called nuclear waste i was searching things tangentially related and there's a you know there's a lot of traditional appalachian coal mining music carter family tom t hall which is not really traditional it's more 60s stuff and then there's this like insane genre of music that's curated for metal that work on oil rigs about like oil field music a lot of it's like old country stuff and then there's a really good jerry reed song crude called crude oil blues that came out during the 73 74 embargo yeah when i was gathering things up for this i didn't focus much on nuclear energy songs because the works we read don't really cover it that much and we did some nuclear stuff for a canticle for Leibowitz and just so much of it some gasoline songs i think i'll definitely throw in some of those coal mining tracks Deepest pool of deepest blue shall swim to you. Morning never waits for you, shall wait for you. You're listening to the the podcast edit of Last Refuge of the Incompetent. What does that mean? Well, that means that all that lovely music that we curate for the radio that fits the theme perfectly and is eclectic and interesting and wonderful to listen to has to be edited out. And if you don't care, then keep listening. But if you do care, 
check us out on Mixcloud. The full unedited show can be found there. Don't know how to find that? Just go to lastrefugepod.com, lastrefugepod.com. All the information you need can be found, accessed, okay. So we're kind of looking at four major works, and we're going to go in and out and, you know, whatever, whoever. Not everyone's read all of them, so it's fine. <laughs> but collectively, we've all read yeah, them all. Yeah, especially you, the listener, so. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of looking at some sci-fi classics that, you know, written at a time when there was this, like, fear of, of uh, our oil disappearing in some capacity. <laughs> Ecotopia... It's a seminal classic. Can I say classic? It's a weird book. Um, <laughs> you know, apparently it was very popular. So in 1975, I guess it influenced a lot of people. And then some of the other books. So there was um, also The Cool War and The Gods Themselves, which is apparently somewhere in the 80s, Asimov said that that was his favorite novel that he ever wrote. Oh, and then we're comparing it to one contemporary book, which I hated, called <laughs> Energized. Ecotopia, The Notebooks and Reports of William Weston. So that's a utopian novel by a man named Ernest Callenbach, and it was published in 1975. It's like a early ecological utopia, and it was a big influence on counterculture and green movement. I think I've seen it called like the last classical utopia, or the last classical utopian novel. And it definitely, especially in its structure, it has that classic structure of a visitor, in this case a journalist, comes from outside and goes through the process of learning about this place. A beautiful land known as California in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest <laughs> that has seceded from the rest of the Union. So good riddance to the United States. And uh, yeah, we, that's us Californians, all formed a, a beautiful nation, a zero waste lifestyle, uh, harmony with nature. And also, uh, just for fun, you like little war games where you, you get your aggression out by hucking spears at your fr- best friends. <laughs> with your best friends at with your neighbors. Your with and, uh, <laughs> well, it's not all of California. It's Northern California, Washington, yeah. Oregon, Los yeah, Angeles. They, they say the maybe United we'll send States. them down to LA. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which, I mean, supposedly they have the mountains fortified with the, on the border with the United States, but I don't understand how the SoCal NorCal border is supposed to work. And where do you draw Probably that big line? Trench. Oh, it's yeah. true. Where do you draw that line? <laughs> yeah, the book does not go into it because he knew it would be too controversial. Yeah. <laughs> it's Sam Luis Obispo. One of the things that struck me, and I, I read most of this I in between studying for finals, one of the things that struck me is that the idea of isolating California and the Pacific Northwest from the rest of the grid, because within North America, there are sort of two large grid interconnections the Western interconnection and the Eastern interconnection. And so just the idea of being able to completely cut yourself off from the interconnection without having severe repercussions to energy services is very questionable. Funny enough, Texas has its own interconnection that covers 85% of the state that's managed by um, what's called ERCOT. 
and specifically in case Texas decides that they want to secede, um, <laughs> they have their own system. So I, I just, that was one of the first things that uh, stood out to me is that whenever anyone talks about California seceding or whatever, that's going to always be a huge challenge. I mean, in the book, Ecotopia also shuts down all its fossil fuel uh, energy plants within like the first year or so. It goes through like a crash program of shrinking the economy and taking over lots of enterprises. They definitely don't keep normal going. I will say there is a lot in it that I think is very relevant and still tracks highly. I would say one of the major oversights, climate change just wasn't really on the board in the 70s so much. And so none of these books really, uh, the 70s books really reflect that concern. But for example, the idea of organic waste all being going to composting. Right now, California is implementing what's called SB 1383, which is an attempt to divert organic waste from landfill. I think the target is 75% of organic waste being diverted from landfill and going to composting or going to anaerobic digesters for energy production. And so when it mentions that, oh, all of our organic waste is composted, that clicked in my brain is like, oh yeah, that's a thing that's currently being worked on. Yeah, well, there is lots of stuff in the book that does feel very much 1970s hippy-dippy stuff. A lot of it is just like, oh, yes, this is a, these are exactly the demands of, you know, livable city urbanists right now, which we haven't made that much progress on, but seems perfectly reasonable. I mean, it, it reminds you, among other things, of just how counter-revolutionary the 80s were, that there are <laughs> so many things that progress seemed to have stopped on the whole way they you know reform the whole political atmosphere is that they make sure they take into account the environmental costs of every action so that's what uh the they convinced the reporter guy every time he comes in and says isn't this stuff like such a huge barrier to implementing all this recycling and these huge scale projects and they try they come back and say well it's cheaper in the long run because we're not destroying everything like you just have to think about those costs you can't just ignore the costs and still that's the lesson that needs to be learned today and there, there are some things some features of ecotopia where you're not sure if that would really work like they're still they're supposedly a zero waste society but they're still producing a fair amount of consumer electronics and they're not importing any metals or mining anything and their their plastics are you know oh the bioplastic yeah, or whatever that they've devised that uh miraculously yeah they're certainly doesn't... far in advance of you know the kinds <laughs> right. of partially compostable plastics we've developed right five Which, decades later you know don't necessarily work unless they're severely sorted out into the correct stream and otherwise they're just producing methane gas in landfills. There's some stuff where you think, well, this seems like wishful thinking, but then there's plenty of other things that just seem like, you know, basic, reasonable ecological economics. And then there's all the free love stuff, which <laughs> oh got to have in 1975. <laughs> there's so much of it. That was my one complaint. I don't know if it's a complaint. I don't know. I, I mean, it was fine. It added to the mystique of the book. <laughs> it put it in a particular era. Um, yeah, gave it a romantic arc. Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Although I uh, work as a groundskeeper now, I, I do have a master's degree in city and regional planning. And I did enjoy that aspect of the, you know, the small city sort of idea of that's what's the most ecologically sound if you're accommodating tons and tons of people. Yeah. About having a good train system. Oh, God. yeah. Oh. So, Ooh, as California, what the, a dream. Speaking of free love, what a dream. <laughs> 
Yeah. What an erotic train system that was. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> also, yeah, there are no chairs. Everything is just, you know, one of those padded conversation pits that inside the also, train. I will say one of my favorite parts was the, like, um, just, like, the New Yorker's idea of what Californians are like. Well, and I, I especially think that on that point, it's funny thinking about the media portrayals of New York in the 1970s, where you have, like, taxi driver and it's all gritty and violent and angry versus how a lot of people perceive of California in the 1970s and where the conversation was at and you know putting this book into context like Jerry Brown was elected governor who you know was governor Moonbeam and talking about spaceship earth and you know there was a famous book of small is beautiful that was like really influencing how people were talking about things in California at the time versus New York where when we think about it we just think of violent and angry and punk and you know <laughs> everything just like having a, a much more dystopian perspective this book is certainly like the 70 70s idea of california and the 70s idea of new york projected into the future however many decades exactly it's supposed to be he did take stuff that was actually happening in california at the time and use that as his ideal i think his kid was going to some mountain schools sort of thing and he there's like a chapter that he's writing about schools and what schooling is like and that's directly taken from his kids experience in schools which you know would be nicer than what we (laughs) we currently have (laughs) i did also find it quite interesting that besides the you know attempting to have a stable state zero waste society the other thing that sort of is the starting point for and defines their economic system is having a 20-hour work week, which is very much still or has become again more of a conversation with high levels of unemployment in some places and fears of automation destroying jobs. Two things that were a little bit not... uh, (laughs) Where did it blow it? (laughs) not woke per se uh he kind of like refers to this like monolithic american indian a lot of times well Um, i'd say the the big problem there isn't just that indians are referred to vaguely they just don't exist yeah exactly (laughs) he does mention it at the end of the book where he's like and there are these factions like the jews and the (laughs) indians well yeah i mean in the so yeah there's brief discussion everyone you actually meet is white but there's discussion about how like oakland is semi-autonomous as a black colony which you know is kind of there were those kinds of ideas in the 70s, but the ecotopians themselves, the white ecotopians, are discussed as being sort of inspired by the American Indian. But, you know, in seceding from the United States, there's no discussion of, like, maybe tribes and nations wanting to be independent <laughs> as well. Right. They seem to just, you know, eh, that was in the past. They don't exist anymore. <laughs> There's a quote that I enjoyed of his that's not in the book, but it kind of talks about like his reason for writing this book. As he got, you know, he got critiqued for it. People were like, this isn't perfect. This isn't possible. And so he says, it is so hard to imagine anything fundamentally different from what we have now. But without these alternate visions, we get stuck on dead center and we'd better get ready. We need to know where we'd like to go, which is really sad to hear. This is like from 1975 that he's making this quote and we're just rolling along, <laughs> pretending like nothing needs to change. And and at the same time, I mean, when you're in the midst of something, it's sometimes hard to see how much you have changed. And mm. I'm sure if, if someone were in a coma for 40 years and compared the United States or wherever 40 years ago to now, where, I mean, it's obviously not this utopian vision, but there has been 
some radical change in in perspective on thinking of some things, including penetration of renewable energy, the extent to which we're doing solar and wind development now, even 15 years ago, was pretty incomprehensible. Like the idea of the solar revolution in 2004 and what it is now, the level of cost decrease and how much they've decreased, no one even in 2003, 2004 was predicting this level, how dramatically those costs have dropped. You know, we haven't really noticed it as much because it's just kind of like, oh, well, now there's a solar farm being put up, like whatever. But, you know, if if you had someone who was an expert in that field go into a coma for 20 years <laughs> and come out of it, they'd be pretty shocked by how disruptive these technologies have been. That's a pitch right there. That's the sci-fi book you're, you're going to write. <laughs> Tell me I should go into a coma right now and I'll be a lot happier when I wake yeah. up. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily guarantee that. But, uh, utopia uh, is no longer going to be the last classical utopia. We're going to make a green Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> My view on this book is skewed because I started reading it and then I took a break and I read Energized, a novel which I do not enjoy. And then I finished Ecotopia and in comparison, I was like, well, this is whimsical and, <laughs> yeah. and like it has these big ideas and wouldn't that be nice? And then, you know, the author also like ran in the same circles as Ursula K. Le Guin. So I don't know if I recommend this book. I think I recommend it as like a quick, fun, what were they thinking about in the 70s read? It's under 200 pages. And yeah. it is refreshing reading something that is just actually utopian rather than being, you know, about a failed utopia or about dystopia. <laughs> just one more thing that I'd like to throw in there on the energy stuff, because, again, that's what I nerd out about, <laughs> is that I was kind of amused when talking about solar power. And obviously, you know, photovoltaic solar panels weren't nearly at capacity um, as in the 1970s, a lot of the development was still happening, particularly around space and what could be used to help power satellites. Uh, I think one thing I saw said that efficiency for early photovoltaics throughout the 70s was at 4% or something ridiculously low. The vision of what solar can contribute in this society is like, oh, well, you can use it for your water heater at home, which tracks with when Carter put solar panels on the White House in 79, those solar panels were water heaters that provided warm water for the residential wing of the White House. Do you guys know where that technology came from? Came from Israel. They're called oh, Gutschemishes gonna... in Israel. <laughs> what did you say? I thought you were going to say space aliens. <laughs> <laughs> well, same thing, right? Lizard people? What? I, I can't say that because oh, no. I can't. I'm Jewish and from Israel. Move on! <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> Welcome to our show, Betty. Why, thank you. Why, thank you. And there were yeah, yeah, Ecotopia also mentioned the ocean thermal gradient generator, which came up in Energized also. Mm. Just going to mention that. There's a lot of interesting little Both equally pipe dreams. Again, to the point that the idea of having rooftop PV solar providing your electricity directly was not even on the radar in like this most utopian of utopian visions. It was like, oh, well, the sun can warm up our water and maybe we can use plant photosynthesis to also provide electricity. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, no, we can do that way more directly now with efficiency levels much, much higher. <laughs> Do you think reading these these kind of hopeful, well, they're not all hopeful, but reading these 70s books within the field that you work in during your finals affected your, your final grades at all? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because I was taking a class in sustainability management and I, I just thought, especially in terms of smart cities or 
you know, whatever you want to say on that. Very much so aligned in terms of like, oh, well, you know, how can we prioritize bicycling in public transit rather than owning cars? So I did think that that was kind of interesting, not necessarily directly informative of getting a good grade. (laughs) 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 shall i move on to the cool war so i apologize i had grand plans to read this but we got a big snowstorm in philly and i'm a groundskeeper at a big university so i spent the past two days shoveling and salting and plowing so i did not when i what i normally do is read at work um so i had to do work work this time around the truth (laughs) is out your boss doesn't listen to this show right Okay, this book was written by Frederick Pohl, published in 1981, and Frederick Pohl, I was reading a little bit about him, he has a 75-year career, guys. That is insane. So in 1937, he wrote a poem called Elegy to a Dead Satellite, Luna, and then in 2011, he wrote a novel, All the Lives He Led. He was a wacky dude. He was the creator of If Magazine. He was the creator of the future. Futurial uh, Congress or whatever. He was a communist and he was a publisher of, uh, what do you say, Ted? He helped get um, The Female Man published or something? Yeah, so at Bantam Books in the 70s, he had sort of his own like license to buy and publish um, novels under like a Frederick Pohl Presents label. So he published with Bantham both uh, The Female Man by Jonah Russ and Dahlgren by Samuel Delaney. He was also the lead editor of several other magazines um, over the years. I think he was Isaac Asimov's first and only agent for like a brief period. Mm. So he's out of that generation. And the Cool War almost feels like a guy of that generation trying to write cyberpunk (laughs) and it coming out very (laughs) weird. He's such a huge sci-fi name, and I know I've read a bunch of his short stories across the, you know, 100 short story collections that I read as a kid, but I I can't remember specifically which ones are his. Yeah, this one was a listener recommendation. Oh, (laughs) Ted not getting specific on this one. (laughs) Ted's dad uh, recommended this book. (laughs) That's right. It was a really interesting contrast with Ecotopia. Because it definitely is much more cynical. And, and I think to an extent that that might be the way that one could probably look at Ecotopia being a reaction to the early 70s oil crisis. And the reaction to that being, you know, small is beautiful and efficiency and let's try and reduce our our need for energy. Versus the 1979 energy crisis where you had Jimmy Carter giving the crisis a confidence speech and being like, oh, well, you know, if you're cold, put on a sweater, don't turn on the heater. And this very much so feels of that sort of temperament. For the most part, I, you know, I thought the story was a little bit silly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And the the idea of the world just, I, I felt like the premise of the world being really stricken by energy poverty and everyone needing like this huge scarcity wasn't consistently held throughout because you know they tried to have this recurring theme of like oh you know i'm flying in jets like isn't this a waste of energy but even the idea of him at one point coming back and 
there's like a pizza place next to his church and just like, oh, well, you know, there are pizza boxes all over the place. It's like if you had <laughs> such high energy scarcity demands where you're having constant brownouts, I don't know. I feel like your your civil society would be much radically altered from how it's presented in this book. I also think it's funny that so much of the conversation now is about efficiency rather than conservation, which the idea of conservation is using fewer energy services Whereas efficiency is having the same level of energy services, but using less energy to achieve it. That's really where so much of the conversation is because, you know, changing a light bulb out with a LED light bulb, like a conventional light bulb with an LED light bulb has huge cost savings generally and energy savings. And so the idea of getting to the point where there's going to be constant brownouts or blackouts within the United States because there was some oil fields bombed is just a not super realistic kind of future. But I can understand why that would be the perspective if published in 1981, where you were coming out of the 1979 oil crisis. Energy is both sort of the the main thing that sort of sets this world apart from our world and becomes the center of the plot's conclusion. But yeah, I agree that it doesn't take it very seriously and mostly gets distracted with this really goofy spy plot, which (laughs) I don't know if it's supposed to be like a satire of James Bond or things like that, or if if this is just what he ended up with. What is Um, the, the, the like cabal that's like working behind the scenes is called the team or something yeah it's, is that what it is you're told that the cia got abolished after you know all, all of its bad stuff all of its dirty laundry <laughs> got exposed this so is a now, time when the cia was still considered bad which is uh <laughs> in stark contrast to the book energized <laughs> yeah um, Well, so I think one thing that makes Energized and the cool, what makes having the Cool War and Energized in the same show interesting is because they both have this very specific plot feature at the beginning, which is that Middle Eastern oil fields have been irradiated with nuclear weapons, and that's why everything's different. And they also feature uh, microwave energy being beamed down, which seemed like it would, in this book, would provide plenty of energy and they shouldn't have an energy crisis at all. Again, it's very inconsistent. <laughs> energy technology at the end of the book is like a concentrated solar utility scale, scale, utility scale solar that uses plants to concentrate the solar energy instead of mirrors, <laughs> which didn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And to get them to concentrate, they would make a UV light hologram above the tower. Yeah. <laughs> which to me would take more energy to probably, I, I don't, you know, I'm not an expert on that, but I assume that that's a huge energy drain, which again, it partially reflects the time because at one point the main character asks his superior for a computer and the guy's like, a computer? That's ridiculous. Like, we can't give you a computer. That's just insane. And it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, computers now, like, it would be much easier to just have some mirrors as that rotate towards the tower rather than creating some <laughs> whole crazy plant-based mirror weird system. But then his friend, who's a magician, does have a computer. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, magicians have mirrors, too. Did That's clutch. (laughs) But yeah, to to give you an idea of just how goofy the spy plot is, the main character, whose name is Horny, um, (laughs) is... He's born Protestant, but grows up in a kibbutz in Israel, um, then becomes Uh. a Unitarian minister, grows up up paralyzed, (laughs) but then gets 
uh, surgery that makes him unparalyzed, becomes hella swole after that, <laughs> and then gets roped into being a spy with this nondescript, non-CIA government agency. And it's in a world where uh, there seems to be sort of UN-mandated world peace. There's a brief mention of the U.S. producing a bunch of tanks and then sending them direct to a scrapyard as part of a international agreement so instead of open warfare countries are just constantly sabotaging each other in little ways which kind of makes life crummy for everyone and (laughs) nobody gets any advantage (laughs) of any kind So his spy missions involve taking a bunch of ferrets on a school trip to Europe so that 80% of German factory workers will call in sick to work. And then the U.S. sells Wait, the, a vaccine to ferret? them. Ferret? Ferret? Like, they're like ferrets or gerbils or something. Oh, okay. No, I thought maybe that was a word that I didn't know. But you're talking about ferrets. Yeah, okay, ferrets. Good. <laughs> Moving on. Or like selling drugs to Italian youth and everyone's putting stuff on their enemies' credit cards. So it's this long, spot, goofy spy plot in which not much really happens, except they eventually go to sabotage this impossible solar plant in a Middle East that now that there's no oil has been sort of taken over by wandering hippies. It's a bizarre book. And when asked, why are you trying to destroy the solar plant rather than utilize those plans yourselves? They're like, well, where are we supposed to put it? Miami? We can't do that. It's like, what? (laughs) Why would it have to be in Miami? And and they kind of explain like, oh, you know, to get efficiency or whatever, like to be a reliable source. But I don't know, you don't necessarily need it to be providing power 100% of the time. It was providing power some of the time that still, if you're having consistent brownouts and shortages... Having more generation is better than having less generation. If if generation is, is the cause and not other infrastructure problems. I think all these plot holes were just part of Frederick Pohl's vision. <laughs> yeah. He's been around. Yeah. I think this sounds like a book that one reads if when they know what a pulpy sci-fi book is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you don't, it, you find it in the used book section in a nice bookstore and you pick it up because it's torn and it's got a weird cover, and that's about it. You don't delve too much deeper into it. <laughs> Unlike what we're doing in the show. <laughs> Other features of this future include polygamous marriages. Argentina seems to be a significant geopolitical power. <laughs> Absolutely. Both of those make sense. Oh, the disdain on Ted's face when he said that. <laughs> I know, seriously. <laughs> Calling you out, Argentina. <laughs> I did find the tank construction immediate demolition fairly amusing as like a social program. It was very Catch-22-esque to me. It's like, oh, well, we can't Mm. just not make these tanks. What'll happen to all those jobs? But then we also have jobs destroying the tanks. So like, (laughs) you know, could we make other productive things? Probably. But, you know, people are employed. So that's nice. I think if this work was intended as sort of a satire of international relations and geopolitics, then it was definitely more of a success than if it was <laughs> supposed to be a, a gripping prediction of our future. But if your main we'll character know. is named Horny, I think it has yeah, to be. Supposed, I do, yeah, <laughs> it has to be a satire, right? Horny Hake. So. Benny, this, this last book, 
that you read, uh, I hate to, we're going to pull the wool, pull the rug underneath your feet. We're going to do something. And neither of us read that book. We did not read the gods themselves. And I apologize for that. But was it good? I think it's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, pulpy 70s sci-fi. I think it was good. And it was much more uh, like, oh, what if this sort of scenario rather than like, I wouldn't say it was necessarily plot driven. I did think it was amusing because it's like one guy accidentally discovers this thing and then takes all of the credit. And that's a big element of the first and third sections of it just kind of makes me think how quaint a society where someone could be a like household name because of being a scientist is, which maybe was the case. 50, I guess 60 years well, ago. That's a, what, Oppenheimer? Uh, certainly right? a, that's a... Yeah. In the context <laughs> of that a, time, makes sense. Especially what, what for saying? Asimov, like, that's his yeah. ideal future. Yeah. Those are the only celebrities. <laughs> Scientists. Right, so this I, is a 1972 sci-fi novel written by Isaac Asimov, and he wrote it in three parts, actually. He, it was, like, published in three separate sections, which which is, uh, with Canical for Leibowitz, is another complaint where it was, like, three sections brought together didn't necessarily go cohesively. I'd say the first and third sections did. The third one was very much so more of an exploration of, like, if weak nuclear force were completely different in this other dimension, you know, what would those beings be like? What would that world be like? And I actually thought that that section was the most interesting because it was the most radical out there of the three sections. My only other thought was really that the idea of being able to set up four large energy generation stations and that would solve all of the world's energy needs <laughs> is pretty amusing. My transmission loss. Well, yeah, I mean, my immediate thought is, like, how do you get it everywhere? (laughs) Um, But it also is very in line with the times of, like, oh, you know, we have huge nuclear and hydro stations, and that's, like, how we conceptualize energy generation or, like, these massive construction projects, which at this point in time just isn't really where a lot of the thinking is. And this book is, like, it's not – so all the other books that we read are – theoretically imagining an alternate future universe or future world. So there's no aliens or anything, but this one has like, you know, this is a more woo-woo sci-fi sort of deal, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll tell you this, Benny, you are much better off having read The Gods Themselves, in my opinion. Than having read Energized. Energized is the more contemporary book that we read. It came out in 2012 by Edward M. Lerner. Mojo, you, you're Let's good at some. Take it down. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the story of a mild mannered scientist. <laughs> <laughs> Works for NASA. Yeah, the Middle Eastern oil fields have been irradiated through uh, sabotage? Question uh, mark. Yeah, yeah it seems the like crude catastrophe. <laughs> the crude catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so that sends the world into just a spiral of energy crisis, and then Russia is now has the only untainted oil supply, and so they become a superpower. And th- yeah, so that's it. There's a, it's a it's a war with Russia now. Oh, and there's this 
super bad Russian dude who's sabotaging every energy project in the world just so that people are even more reliant on the Russian oil. And that's the moral. That's the moral <laughs> of the story. So, you know, it's an airport thriller. It's got it does have some yeah. cool space stuff. Like we capture America captures uh, an asteroid to keep in Earth orbit and it provides, you know, some resources and also they station a big solar power satellite out there that then you can beam down energy onto Earth. And so there's some cool science in that stuff. There's cool science there's the section that I got into was the very last part where it starts to get very, like, just action-y. Like, ooh, how are they going to, mm-hmm. like, you know, techno thriller. Like, how are they going to get out of this jam? But then it was interspersed with, like, oh, dear Lord, did he just say woman can be so obtuse? Like, is that literally a line in this yeah. book that got me out of it pretty quickly? Yeah, I mean, as many criticisms as I have of the book, <laughs> it it is decently, has a decent dramatic narrative structure. And you can tell, I think he has a physics background. And yeah. you can tell he's mm-hmm. been in rooms with scientists. Yeah, I mean, he um, he worked for 30 years in aerospace and information technology industries, and he wrote sci-fi part-time. So he gets a lot of the scientists in a room stuff seemingly pretty well. It's kind of nice having a world where a giant solar power microwave satellite also has, like, a public comment process. It's mm-hmm. sort of, like, the <laughs> boring bureaucratic nature of that down. In the acknowledgments, he also mentions that he's like part of a group of science fiction writers who consult as futurists for the federal government. So he went to like he Him went to Max one Brooks. of these <laughs> Well he went to a conference <laughs> on one of the subjects that's in the book funded by the Department of Homeland Security. Mm. <laughs> so, and yes, it's very much an American unilateralism novel. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the book, the happy ending is basically that America has sole control of a has militarized As, space and has sole control of a destructive of a death weapon. ray. Yeah, yeah, of a death ray. <laughs> yeah, like, and that's the happy ending. James, There's James Bond style death ray. There doesn't yeah. seem to be any problem with that. <laughs> After the 70s oil crisis, crises, a lot of people failed to predict, like, how much new oil production there would be. Like, people thought, oh, that, everything's going to be like this from now on. But because of the high price of oil, there was new exploration in the North Sea, developed, you know, fracking and stuff like that. So there ended up being way more oil being that was now economical to produce, and we sort of went out of the oil crisis period. So when you read the 70s stuff, it's kind of, it's understandable that they didn't get it right at that time. But then in Energized, having that example, he gets it totally wrong again. And I don't know if I've ever read a book that got the near future so completely wrong. <laughs> like this is it, It's literally like 2023 when mm-hmm. he's right. Like yeah, it's... the prologue is 2020 and then the main book yeah. is three years later. And he wrote but, it in 2012. That's very yeah. and even easy in, to speculate. <laughs> even in 2012, uh, most of the U.S.'s oil was from the U.S. or the Western Hemisphere. Very mm. little from the Middle East. Right. Like none from Russia. By, you know, 2019, we were net exporters um, of both processed <laughs> and unprocessed oil. So the idea that having, like, super ISIS blow up all its oil would make us like a second class power to scary russians is completely preposterous it seems to only exist to like make us the scrappy underdogs against a russian villain you know it it certainly would impact the price of oil and it you know countries that were more directly dependent on middle eastern oil might have a hard time but it would not create anything like the future that is uh (laughs) 
<laughs> predicted here. Yeah, and I I didn't get to around to reading this book, but based on this description, it, it is kind of funny to think that because, I mean, 2012 is like the middle of the first fracking boom. And right now, fracking has to have a fairly high world oil price to be cost competitive just because the exploration and technology for extraction has such high costs. So in a situation where there is global scarcity, like fracked resources would be way past market parity. Like they'd be able to, you know, you'd be fracking all over the place, assuming politically (laughs) that that's allowable kind of silly situation, given the time period and where energy resources in the United States were at, even in 2012. Another thing that's extremely annoying about this book is (laughs) the evil Russian chess playing um, spy is in cahoots with... Vodka drinking, vodka drinking. Vodka drinking, caviar eating. I I already said Russian, (laughs) didn't I? He's in cahoots with a guy who's like an anarcho-primitivist hedge fund manager who invests in renewable energy startups specifically to sabotage them. And make he sure they're not successful. In Gaia, Ted. In <laughs> and he's written. He's, yeah, he's a yeah. he's a human extinctionist. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he yeah. doesn't want new <laughs> renewable energy sources because he thinks all energy use is bad because it's hurting the environment. And he came to this view by like going on a road trip to Arizona once and noticing <laughs> that yeah. there was slightly more life outside of cities than inside of it. And that made him a Gaian. It's just so yeah. clear that Lerner has like so little sympathy or understanding of environmentalists that he can't oh, yeah. make like a convincing extremist even. No. It, yeah, he's very one-dimensional and unconvincing. Right, and he's like a like a billionaire. So he's like Elon Musk if Elon Musk took some mushrooms out at like White Sands. Well, except he then... only he only oh, seems he's to already be done that for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's a, he's a hedge fund manager who's investing in things to make them fail. So how is that? How does that business plan work? <laughs> is it only because this Russian guy is sinking like billions of dollars into it? And if so, how is he keeping it secret? These are all the organizations that Edward Lerner worked at. Bell Labs, Hughes Aircraft, Honeywell, and Northrop Grumman, in case anybody was wondering. <laughs> this like vision of i mean this is what strikes me so this was his 12th novel that he wrote 12th the amount 12th. of times <laughs> the, the seriously the, this isn't even a joke he literally writes women are so obtuse um anyway i mean that's that's a character <laughs> thinking that <and> um <laughs> okay i think anyway. i think it makes sense for that character to have that as a passing thought Sure, why not? Yeah, they're all pretty dumb it, characters. Yeah, it didn't hugely detract. <laughs> well, I didn't like it. <laughs> Neither did I. But. <laughs> but I was imagining, like, like my dad, who's a Silicon Valley engineer, deciding to write a novel. <laughs> and like, <laughs> like this is... <laughs> or, like, I, I mean, my dad wouldn't. My dad would write, write like, some in-depth, boring historical nonfiction about some war. But if for some reason he was into writing sci-fi, this is what he would write. Sort of makes sense. Oh, I'd read your dad's book. (laughs) (laughs) Instagram keeps telling me to follow your mom, so I might as well get your dad's book on Goodreads. Dick Cheney slept here. Apparently Dick Cheney carved into the in this novel. Dick Cheney, when he's staying at some war room, uh, dorm room. Summer camp. (laughs) Summer camp. Carved Dick Cheney slept here. And the man, the character goes... 
Dick Cheney, that name sounds familiar. 2020, she doesn't know who Dick Cheney is? Did the crew transportation wipe out her memory? <laughs> I mean, people... Yeah, and she's our age, so <laughs> she would have lived Her through. husband died in Afghanistan, and she doesn't know who Dick <laughs> Cheney is? <laughs> I wish I didn't know who Dick Cheney was. (laughs) Seriously. That's why science fiction is so great. (laughs) Imagine different worlds. To imagine beautiful utopias. (laughs) So there was that one tiny... Two stars! (laughs) I did give it two stars. Uh, I I gave it two because I did did get into the, like, how are they going to get out of this? Yeah, it makes sense that it's his 12th novel and that, like, the plotting is pretty well-tuned. And, yeah, like, a a weird standoff on top of a giant solar satellite is something I haven't, you know, necessarily read in a book before. So, as in Ecotopia, there's this thermal ocean, like, ocean thermal differential plant being made. But then they use, and it's, like, built on an old oil rig, like, off the Channel Islands. But then they use microwaves... To beam the power back, which becomes a weapon, but like, there's no reason not to just use a cable at that point. It's so close. <laughs> it's a thing where nonsense. Speaking of nonsense, friend of the show Marissa Wilson has a question that I'm positing to all you guys. Marissa wants to know. Do people count as renewable energy? This is, she said, I remember reading The Road and thinking it is way more sustainable to not have a baby than to feed both a mother and an embryo, to carry it to term, just to eat it. I thought that was a clever point, Marissa Wilson. Oh, spoilers for The Road. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that seems like it can't be... That's that has to be a caloric loss. Yeah, I mean it's the yeah. same same problem same plot hole that the Matrix ran into. I would say in terms of the question, that's I mean, <laughs> do we do we count cows as a renewable energy resource? Oh, so anything mm. that could multiply itself would it be an injury? That's a and I don't know. Is this a philosophical question now? <laughs> I would say no because I don't think it's necessarily renewable. Whereas like solar energy or wind energy or tidal energy, you know, I mean, every time you extract something from them, in theory, you're you know depleting it. But I mean, we're not going to mm-hmm. deplete the sun. It's going to be there for a few billion years. Hopefully. Um, oh, right. If you eat a person, that person's gone. But what if you make that person... Oh, no, but eventually that person dies. All right, golf. <laughs> Oof, my brain is spinning here. <laughs> well, let's say you're using a cow as a source of labor power, like you're pulling right. a plow. Yeah, let's that say cow... that you're using a person to pull a plow. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> I mean, if the cow's source of energy is grass that just grows because there's sun and water, and they're, it's consuming grass that the level that at the rate that grass renews itself then yeah that cow is a renewable energy source so i guess the same would go for a person it depends on what the sources of its energy are it's probably not going to be the most efficient way to convert solar energy into physical labor physical work (laughs) can be renewable i mean since you know there's been life on this planet for a while before humans even yeah a sort of dynamic equilibrium now and then but that that's the whole goal of ecotopia is finding that balance right if you if you push anything too hard too extractive then it's not renewable anymore because you you scooped out so much that it can never be filled back in. How do you find that balance? That balance is there for humans and cows. Koyana Scotsy, life out of balance. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently the answer is you live in wooden buildings and wear undyed clothing. If any. <laughs> The 
one thing I considered talking about for this is how renewable energy and people promoting it as a villain in Hollywood movies has been such a thing for several decades. That second Batman movie, the movie Sahara, Quantum of Solace, Chain Reaction. <laughs> um, these are all movies where, yeah, the villain has some dumb renewable energy project, which is either secretly a weapon or secretly destructive in some way. Not terribly subtle propaganda. <laughs> um, not that I think the... Freaking Northrop Grumman. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I think that the oil industry ne is necessarily paying Hollywood producers and scriptwriters to make these movies. You know, if that isn't happening, there's still sort of a feeling that, like, our way of life must be good, right? So this <laughs> other way that's supposed to be better and less destructive, there has to be something secretly evil about evil, it, right? Right. You know, you know, I noticed in the credits of that Jupiter Ascending movie was Steve Mnuchin. So what kind of propaganda ploy was that? Hey, way to go for saying true to your word that you're going to mention Jupiter Ascending in every <laughs> single episode that we talk about. Well, I, I meant to bring up that Steve Mnuchin thing earlier. There's a joke from The Simpsons that I always think about a long time ago where they go to Epcot and they're in an electric car and the car has like a jingle that's something along the lines of, I'm an electric car, I don't go very fast, and I don't go very far. And the joke is that it's paid for by Exxon. <laughs> <laughs> I just think about that on occasion. <laughs> I think The Simpsons also had a joke where Ed Begley came on and said, I built a car that's powered by my own sense of self-superiority. It's a renewable resource. Oh, Eddie! <laughs> and he puts on a helmet and drives away. Has, any, has anyone seen Sahara? No, I haven't. That, no. That big budget 2005 adaptation of a Clive Custer novel starring Matthew McConaughey and Steve Ooh. Zahn. The villain in that is like a French industrialist who starts a solar-powered nuclear waste recycling facility in North Africa, which ends up poisoning Touareg's water supply. Oh, Benny, you said that you're working on some uh, projects in... Not that this is even not related to what's happening. You're not an evil man doing renewable energy. <laughs> you, don't, you don't know that. Yeah, are you do you know any evil French industrialists? Well, I wish I did. Yeah, right now I'm doing an internship with a nonprofit that's just doing renewable energy or energy efficiency projects in sub-Saharan Africa. There's actually a big one being supported by the French Development Agency about renewable energy and energy efficiency financing within Nigeria. So, I mean, a lot of the issue is that upfront costs are high typically for a lot of these things, and a lot of banks don't really understand or haven't been trained to really properly assess the returns on energy efficiency investments or renewable energy investments. And so part of what we're doing is helping gain that understanding of like, what makes a good project, what makes a financially sound project, and who makes a good client and, and that sort of thing. So nothing on that is utility scale or would really be something that a evil French industrialist would be interested in, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, <laughs> It's mostly like, oh, I, you know, have a milk processing plant. How can I make my equipment more efficient? Benny also sent us um, some articles, which are, you know, if you don't know anything about renewable energy, they're, they're pretty good primers in getting started. And I'll, I'll link to all of them on the website. But were there any that you really wanted to highlight in particular? First, I think understanding what constitutes like destructive technologies is really great. Essentially, the idea is like, what's a new technology that is going to be able to permanently displace an incumbent technology? Renewables are a disruptive technology, whether it's solar or wind, 
the prices go down constantly. The ability to integrate with the grid is improving every year. That's disruptive. There's a lot of discussion about whether or not shale is disruptive or fracked oil is disruptive because while it did open up a whole new market for American oil and natural gas, it's really hasn't been staying price competitive with the world market. And so a lot of people from the oil industry like to argue like, yes, it is. This is a disruptive technology. We're undermining conventional oil, but I'm personally quite skeptical of that. <laughs> and I think even in this article, they, they might talk about it as disruptive and in the short term, sure. In the long term, I doubt it. And we're even seeing now that, you know, with the pandemic and oil price shocks happening right now, shale just isn't going to be competitive in, in that environment, depending on what happens. And so many of those shale oil operations are smaller companies that have been operating on huge amounts of debt, that hopefully most of them will go bankrupt. A, a lot of them are. Yeah, absolutely. And there just isn't, there's not as much resource as they want us to think there is. I mean, you can mm -hmm. see the first fracking boom in North Dakota is basically dead just because there wasn't that much of it. But when they're going to investors or whoever, they want to say like, oh, you know, efficiency and technology improvement and scaling, like that'll bring costs down. We'll be able to find more. And that just is a marketing pitch. It's um, just like Bitcoin at this point. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Do you know the only people that friend our account on Twitter are just like Bitcoin like bots? <laughs> no, they're except, not. Except they're, they're real they're, people. Some of them are real people. Some of them are just like, my name is, my name is Vlad and I'm a huge fan of Bitcoin. And you're just like, what? Probably used the wrong hashtag. Hey, at least we polluted a lot of water to get 10 years of extra oil. And, Yay! you know, caused some uh, earthquakes and a lot of other health impacts. It's fine. It's fine. Yay! And super high carbon emissions. It's... Don't worry about it. Some people made a lot of money very quickly. My favorite terrifying excuse for all that stuff is, well, the end of days is almost here anyway, so we might as well. <laughs> it's just... It gives me a real pit in my stomach feeling when when I see someone with a huge amount of power have earnestly have that opinion. One last time, if you just listened to this entire show and thought to yourself, hang on a second, weren't they supposed to play music? Well now, you're listening to the podcast edit of this show. If you want to listen to the music, go to lastyearfepod.com. You can find a playlist of all the music that we play and links to the mix cloud and all that good stuff. And um, enjoy. What's our topic um, next week, y'all? Oh, our westerns in space. <laughs> and uh, you can go on our we uh, website as always, lastrefugepod.com. There's going to be a bunch of articles there that Benny, who is a real a real boy who works in <laughs> in a real field. What are you saying about your co-hosts, Gal? <laughs> <laughs> It's just me putting on voices, <laughs> throwing my voice. <laughs> That's um, ridiculous. And uh, so they were pretty great. And also, it was really, really nice to have you on, Benny. You were really, genuinely a great guest. Pleasure like all of our here. guests. Like all of our previous guests. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to give a shout out to our good friend Aaron Fleming, who connected oh, us, yeah. a wonderful human being. Her shows are on Fridays, I think at noon or 11 um, Pacific, something like that. I know the time changed, so I'm not sure mm. when it is now. But uh, yeah, is shout out to Aaron for connecting us. 
Yeah, hold on. Stay tuned to KCSB. You know, just keep it keep it always playing in your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's yes. ideally you should always have a radio on ten to twelve Friday Worst. mornings. Real close Friday mornings ten to twelve. Ribbon around the bomb. Female femme and femme identifying post punk is uh, is Aaron's thing. Yeah, send us some hot Bitcoin tips at the last <laughs> refuge of the incompetent at gmail dot com. And uh, you know, leave us a voicemail. Benny's got a landline, so he can call. My parents have a landline. Eight zero five two five three three zero nine one. And if you don't have a landline. Well, you could use Zoom or your phone. Uh, there's so many ways that you could leave us a voicemail if you want to. And also, we're doing this new thing. Please don't hate me for it. But if you liked the radio show Serial that happened before all of this conversation, but not any of this conversation, then check out The Incompanauts on a <laughs> podcasting platform near you. I'll be making a separate RSS feed just for those. Oh, it'll be a, a separate feed just for our bits? Y- yeah, I'll Radio do, plays. Like, um, a Sweet Dreams. Yeah, right? Sweet Dreams and Competeers. Science fiction. <laughs>